Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 28 Towards sunset the fair itself became quiescent. It was the hour for the dancing to begin. At one side of the village of tents a space had been roped off, acetylene lamps hung round it on posts, casting a piercing white light. In one corner sat the band, and, obedient to its scraping and blowing, two or three hundred dancers tramped across the dry ground, wearing away the grass with their booted feet. Round this patch of all but daylight, alive with motion and noise, the night seemed preternaturally dark. Bars of light reached out into it, and every now and then a lonely figure, or a couple of lovers, interlaced, would cross the bright shaft, flashing for a moment into visible existence to disappear again as quickly and surprisingly as they had come. Dennis stood by the entrance of the enclosure, watching the swaying, shuffling crowd. The slow vortex brought the couples round and round again before him, as though he were passing them in review. There was Priscilla, still wearing her queenly toque, still encouraging the villagers, this time by dancing with one of the tenant farmers. There was Lord Molin, who had stayed on to the disorganised Passoverish meal that took the place of dinner on this festal day, he one-stepped shamblingly, his bent knees more precariously wobbly than ever, with a terrified beauty, Mr. Scogan trotted around with another. Mary was in the embrace of a young farmer of heroic proportions. She was looking up at him, talking, as Dennis could see, very seriously. What about, he wondered, the Malthusian League, perhaps? Seated in the corner among the band, Jenny was performing wonders of virtuosity upon the drums. Her eyes shone, she smiled to herself. A whole subterranean life seemed to be expressing itself in those loud rat-tats, those long rolls and flourishes of drumming. Looking at her, Dennis ruefully remembered the red notebook. He wondered what sort of a figure he was cutting now. But the sight of Anne and Gombold swimming past, Anne with her eyes almost shut and sleeping, as it were, on the sustaining wings of movement and music, dissipated these preoccupations. Male and female created he them. There they were, Anne and Gombold, and a hundred couples more, all stepping harmoniously together to the old tune of male and female created he them. But Dennis sat apart. He alone lacked his complementary opposite. They were all coupled but he, all but he. Somebody touched him on the shoulder, and he looked up. It was Henry Wimbush. "'I never showed you our oaken drain-pipes,' he said. "'Some of the ones we dug up are lying quite close to here. Would you like to come and see them?' Dennis got up, and they walked off together into the darkness. The music grew fainter behind them. Some of the higher notes faded out altogether. Jenny's drumming and the steady sawing of the bass throbbed on, tuneless and meaningless in their ears. Henry Wimbush halted. Here we are, he said, and, taking an electric torch out of his pocket, he cast a dim beam over two or three blackened section of tree trunks scooped out into the semblance of pipes, which were lying forlornly in a little depression in the ground. Very interesting, said Dennis, with a rather tepid enthusiasm. They sat down on the grass. A faint white glare rising from behind a belt of trees indicated the position of the dancing floor. The music was nothing but a muffled rhythmic pulse. "'I shall be glad,' said Henry Wimbush, "'when this function comes at last to an end. I can believe it. 
I do not know how it is, Mr. Wimbush continued, but the spectacle of numbers of my fellow creatures in a state of agitation moves in me a certain weariness rather than any gaiety or excitement. The fact is, they don't very much interest me. They aren't in my line. You follow me? I could never take much interest, for example, in a collection of postage stamps. Primitives or seventeenth-century books, yes, they're my line, but stamps, no. I don't know anything about them. They're not my line. They don't interest me. They give me no emotion. It's rather the same with people, I'm afraid. I'm more at home with these pipes. He jerked his head sideways towards the hollowed logs. The trouble with the people and the events of the present is that you never know anything about them. What do I know of contemporary politics? Nothing. What do I know of the people I see around me? Nothing. What they think of me, or of anything else in the world, what they will do in five minutes' time, are things I just can't guess at. For all I know, you may suddenly jump up and try to murder me in a moment's time. Come, come, said Dennis. True, Mr. Wimbush continued, the little I know about your past is certainly reassuring. But I know nothing of your present, and neither you nor I know anything of your future. It's appalling. In living people, one is dealing with unknown and unknowable quantities. One can only hope to find out anything about them by a long series of the most disagreeable and boring human contacts, involving a terrible expense of time. It's the same with current events. How can I find out anything about them except by devoting years to the most exhausting first-hand study, involving once more an endless number of the most unpleasant contacts? No, give me the past. It doesn't change. It's all there in black and white, and you can get to know about it comfortably and decorously, and above all, privately, by reading. By reading, I know a great deal of Caesar Borgia, of St. Francis, of Dr. Johnson. A few weeks have made me thoroughly acquainted with these interesting characters, and I have been spared the tedious and revolting process of getting to know them by personal contact, which I should have to do if they were living now. How gay and delightful life would be if one could get rid of all the human contacts. Perhaps, in the future, when machines have attained to a state of perfection, for I confess that I am, like Godwin and Shelley, a believer in perfectibility, the perfectibility of machinery, then, perhaps, it will be possible for those who, like myself, desire it, to live in a dignified seclusion, surrounded by the delicate attentions of silent and graceful machines, and entirely secure from any human intrusion. It's a beautiful thought. Beautiful, Dennis agreed. But what about the desirable human contacts, like love and friendship? The black silhouette against the darkness shook its head. The pleasures even of these contacts are much exaggerated, said the polite, level voice. It seems to me doubtful whether they are equal to the pleasure of private reading and contemplation. Human contacts have been so highly valued in the past, only because reading was not a common accomplishment and because books were scarce and difficult to reproduce. The world, you must remember, is only just becoming literate. As reading becomes more and more habitual and widespread, an ever-increasing number of people will discover that books will give them all the pleasures of social life, and none of its intolerable tedium. At present, people in search of pleasure naturally tend to congregate in large herds and to make a noise. In future, their natural tendency will be to seek solitude and quiet. The proper study of mankind is books. "'I sometimes think that it may be,' said Dennis. He was wondering if Anne and Gombold were still dancing together. "'Instead of which,' said Mr. Wimbush with a sigh, "'I must go and see if all is well on the dancing floor.' They got up, 
and began to walk slowly towards the white glare. If all these people were dead, Henry Wimbush went on, this festivity would be extremely agreeable. Nothing would be pleasanter than to read in a well-written book of an open-air ball that took place a century ago. How charming, one would say, how pretty and how amusing. But when the ball takes place today, when one finds oneself involved in it, then one sees the thing in its true light. It turns out to be merely this, he waved his hand in the direction of the acetylene flares. In my youth, he went on after a pause, I found myself, quite fortuitously, involved in a series of the most phantasmagorical amorous intrigues. A novelist could have made his fortune out of them. And even if I were to tell you, in my bald style, the details of these adventures, you would be amazed at the romantic tale. But, I assure you, while they were happening, these romantic adventures, they seemed to me no more and no less exciting than any other incident of actual life. To climb by night up a rope ladder to a second-floor window in an old house in Toledo seemed to me, while I was actually performing this rather dangerous feat, an action as obvious, as much to be taken for granted, as, how shall I put it, as quotidian as catching the 852 from Surbiton to go to business on a Monday morning. Adventures and romance only take on their adventurous and romantic qualities at second hand. Live them, and they are just a slice of life like the rest. In literature they become as charming as this dismal ball would be if we were celebrating its tercentenary. They had come to the entrance of the enclosure and stood there, blinking in the dazzling light. Ah, if only we were, Henry Wimbush added. Anne and Gombold were still dancing together. End of chapter